is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD, powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Foote, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Paul K. DiCostanzo. And Paul, holidays are here, and we have something of a a gift, I suppose, for our lovely AD History listeners. This is true, we certainly do, even though I'm still getting my mind around the the incredible paradigm shift we just heard for the first time. My goodness, it is so (laughs) weird to hear that backwards. But he did a fantastic job. Thank you for thank, thank you. you for picking up this time. Yeah, we definitely do have something really fun for our listeners. So if you are listening to this right now on the day it is released, what we can first say is that if indeed you are celebrating Christmas, Merry Christmas. And of course, a happy new year and whatever holiday you may celebrate, whether it started before today or or after, or whatever the case may be, you are in our thoughts and we wish you well and thank you again for listening to AD History. And yeah, we have, I would say, something a little bit fun, something that I would call holiday festive, if I were to call anything in particular, Patrick. I call it, uh, it's kind of the AD History equivalent of the last day of school when the teacher just can't be bothered to study and work anymore, so he's put a, a film on for the kids. I kind of call it the AD History version of that. Oh yeah, this is this is definitely a last day of school situation for now. But so... But before we get into the fun we're going to have, a couple of things, guys. First off, the next time you hear from us is, in fact, going to be three weeks from December 26, 2020. Simply put, guys, we need a break. (laughs) So we will be back on January 16th, 2021 for our first episode of the new year, and we look forward to that. And we can definitely say thank you all so much for listening to AD History in 2020. It has been an incredibly difficult year. Patrick nor myself, despite the fact we largely work at home, have ever been exempt from this. We're all in the same boat across the planet. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed to better fortunes and any number of things this year. But if there has been a bright spot, at least for you and I, Patrick, Mm -hmm. one of them most certainly has been 80 history taking off as it has and bringing new people into the fold, talking to wonderful people, doing excellent episodes, releasing twice a month now, guys, thanks to you all. And it couldn't make me any happier. No, likewise, it's going to make me any happier. Just seeing how AD history going from strength to strength, really. Uh, I think I've talked to you about this, Paul, personally, in the past, if I've said it on uh, on the show itself. Obviously, with Name Explained, that sort of grew in the same sort of trajectory. And it's just fun and exciting seeing another product grow in that same style it's always exciting to see something build up and rise up and it's really on the track there of AD history and it's just fun to go through that experience all over again oh well absolutely because it's interesting anytime you're doing something like this you're always kind of laying the seeds and doing the foundational work and putting in the hard work and planning and all that and then you start seeing it come to fruition and you know when you're beginning to hit your stride when it begins to take on its own life, yeah, which it has. And that's amazing. Yeah. It doesn't get old ever. No, it's always fun. Also, before we go any further, so we had kind of an interesting 
bit at the beginning of this year where we asked you, based on the fact that we had just concluded the 2010s decade, what you thought future historians will think about the decade that had just passed. And this time we're putting it to you again, but we're going and we're talking about 2020. Obviously the pandemic speaks for itself and that cannot go without mention, but we want to hear from you. What do you think, in addition to the pandemic as well, do you think future historians will be most interested in and have to say about the year 2020 that is set to pass? And you can send it to us as a comment on YouTube. You can email it to us at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com, as well on the socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We want to hear from you because the last time we did, and it made for such a great episode, and we want to do it again. It was honestly that that asking what the 2010s will be remembered for is one of my personal highlights. And 2020 has pretty much been a decade unto itself, so it only seems fitting to do it again. Yes, I, I think it's kind of turning into its own tradition. It's not one that we started with the idea that could have become a tradition, but those are usually the best traditions that just flow organically. Now, let's talk to each other and our beloved audience about one of the best pieces of satire and comedy films of all time, Monty Python's Life of Brian. So I guess the first thing we also kind of need to as well, Paul, just explain, this is AD History Watches, and I guess we kind of just want to do this whenever we have a bit of sort of fun time, like around the holiday season, it makes sense to do a fun thing like this, and just talk about a kind of historically related film to, I guess, maybe perhaps the era we're talking about, or just history in general, and the life of Brian seemed like the perfect place to start in this sort of side venture of watching films relating to history. Not even because it's somewhat Christmas-themed, I suppose, what with it beginning on the very first Christmas this film does, but the life of Brian and, of course, Jesus, who, who it's somewhat about, is where AD comes from. It just seemed right, like the great, the, be the best place to start watching films from. Paul, do you agree with that? Undoubtedly, that, and it definitely follows very, very nicely from our prior episode when we're talking about Juvenile the Satirist. Now we're talking about some of the most famous and notorious satirists of the 20th and 21st century, which of course is Monty Python. And they have a very unique way of doing it. And at the same time, it was interesting when you're watching this film, Patrick, you mentioned this in the last mm. episode, the idea that satire is supposed to make you feel at least a little uncomfortable. And in the case of Monty Python, we have to kind of remember the context that it came out, guys. And as you can imagine, while it definitely received a tremendous amount of critical acclaim, and it's only grown in its legacy since that time, it was also not fully well-received from religiously devout in certain places and certain situations. Definitely took umbrage with certain parts of it. But the fact of the matter is, the one thing you can always say about Monty Python, and you and I were talking about this in the last episode as far as spitting image is concerned, Patrick, is that they're equal opportunity satirists. They just go after mm. everyone and everything without abandon, which is the best kind of satire. Mm. And two, they do it with a lightheartedness and good nature that really shines through in their work, where it's one of those things you have to say to yourself, you got to be able to laugh at yourself. It's just kind yeah. of, it's, it's the tone, the four-letter word, all-important aspect of film, tone, that Life of Brian and so many other Monty Python productions always have taken up. And I just think what's so amazing about the Life of Brian, I've 
Well, I've been a Monty Python fan for most of my life. And back in the day when I was a younger kid, I thought the Holy Grail was the funnier film because it's just sort of silly and fun. And that's when the Pythons were fundamentally, if you watched their original TV show, it was sort of just silly and nonsense. It was incredibly clever and smart, but it was just sort of silly. They'd never really done a full story. Even the Holy Grail is just a sort of a series of sketches, more or less. So to see them then come out with a film this clever, with such a strong story, a strong, unique story, which is satire, because you probably couldn't really call anything they did prior to Brian satire. It was just sort of just silly comedy. And, of course, Life of Brian was directed by Terry Jones, one of the Pythons himself. He was in this world as Brian's mum. And he passed away recently. He was, I think it was earlier this year he passed away. And you tend to get an appreciation for someone's work after they pass away. And as a kid, when I watched Monty Python, Terry Jones never really particularly stood out to me. It's just kind of, I always enjoy sort of John Cleese and Graham Chapman and Eric Idle being sort of really ridiculous. But man, he is so funny in this film and clearly a terrific director because this film is superbly made and he he's absolutely the highlight. Whenever he, obviously he plays multiple characters. I think, Paul, you have some stats about how many characters the pythons played but he's oh, primarily yeah. in it as mandy brian's mum, and he is so darn funny and just this film as a whole is so darn funny my favorite line is just when uh brian's mum is talking about brian's dad naughtiest maximus mm-hmm. <laughs> and she just she's talking about how wonderful he is, and she just casually says and all the gold i could eat and it's just so, <laughs> it's such like a wait what so this, these yeah. lines are like catch you, and I just, I just, it, it would be a miss to not mention the mastermind on and off camera that Terry Jones put into this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And when you stop and you were mentioning this little statistic that I'm about to share mm. with you all, it kind of gives you an idea of just how talented and how incredible this production was. Literally, six actors portrayed forty different roles in a 90 minute film that even puts like a michael myers to shame my goodness eddie murphy was coming to mind for me oh yeah how could i forget eddie murphy yes absolutely (laughs) you guys get the idea it's a it's a it's a it's a great historical comedic trope that when it's done well there's nothing like it there's nothing like it and when it's done really well you don't even notice it i think there's off i think there's a couple times in this film where you've got like Reg and the head centurion in the same scene. Obviously, it's just sort of standard because they're both John Cleese, and you don't really notice it, or you don't even you're not distracted by the fact. You're never thinking, "Oh, I just saw him literally a second ago as a different character." Your mind just goes with it because they're all so good at portraying these ridiculous characters. Oh yeah, Monty Python is just makes itself so clearly over the top. And that's really part of that classic Monty Python tone that we were talking about and how they do satire. And the amazing thing is, and this is very much an extension from our conversation last time on satire, is that through comedy and its ability to recognize and poke fun at foibles, it also hits on a lot of really deep themes as well, which we'll get to in a bit. That's the interesting thing about good satire is that it always speaks to some bigger ideas that the satirist has in mind, whatever they might be. And there's a great quote. This is not relevant to satire, but it it can certainly be applied to it. And this is a paraphrase quote Mm. by Duke Ellington. He said, 
you have to learn to say something without saying it. There's a subtlety to satire, and especially British satire, which obviously can be very dry at times, but more often it's it's what they're not saying. Mm, and one of the notes you took, which really, um, I didn't really pick up on this, but I just see it in your notes here. And you've written that part of the brilliance of this film is that it allows the Pythons to poke fun at the Jesus story without actually poking fun at Jesus. He's in this film. The actual big man himself is in this film for all of a few seconds near the start. And that was a great way. And that reminded me of the If Only the Fuhrer knew stories <laughs> you were telling me about last time as well. Well, like, I, I like to think it's not quite as draconian as that. Not um, quite on but, the nose, but it just reminded me of <laughs> by that. By any means. Uh, a film like this certainly could never be made in a totalitarian state for a number of reasons. <laughs> and in fact, you know, this movie does also poke fun at political extremism, mm. which is something else that we'll, we'll hit on in a bit. But no, in the case of the, the Jesus story and the Jesus epic, as we understand it in the Gospels in particular, not even talking about it from history, because that's not so much the point in this case when it came to the satire, making it the life of Brian and making their course and trajectory of life just kind of be separated by three degrees and a, and a whole ridiculous set of circumstances that make it possible, mm. allow them to comment on it without commenting on it. But if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you're going to come through very clearly in a very well-crafted way. Could not have agreed more. So I think it's probably best, we kind of talked about the big themes of this film and whatnot, but let's just sort of go from the top. And you've got a fascinating fact here about that opening Ballad. Of course, before the introduction, it begins with Brian literally being born in the stable next to Jesus, which is just as bad as on the nose as you can get about it. Oh, yeah. They're only a couple of doors down. And, and of course, the Magi who show up, the three wise men, make the mistake of going into the, <laughs> the infant home of Brian and his uh, pretty colorful mom, if you will. <laughs> and she, she is all trying to kick them out. At once, you know, just accusing him of being a bunch of drunks coming in at 2 a.m., you know, to praise the child. And she is all but kicked them out when she realizes that they have brought gold with them. And frankincense. And yes, and myrrh. And, and myrrh, which I don't know about you, but I kind of get the feeling, and I think the writers also kind of hit on this as well. There are so many people in this world, I think we've all been a part of it, that have asked ourselves, what the hell is myrrh? It's literally, I only know of it from this story. I mean, frankincense I have a bit of a better understanding for, but it's literally just, that's the joke of myrrh. I remember like in the school nativity, you didn't want to be the wise man who got the myrrh. <laughs> I, I honestly, believe it or not, I actually never was at a school that held a, a nativity uh, or something like that. So I can only take your word for it, but I do understand what you mean. So that, I find that very interesting. In, in the opening ballad, Brian, and the first thing I thought to myself is, sounds like almost like Goldfinger 007 mm, the opening ballad just because the, the vocalist in particular sounded so similar at least to me off the bat at, at first impression and apparently I was not the first person to come up with this observation because I looked it up and so I think they probably were kind of going for that thing a little bit but in fact they are two different vocalists so in the case of Goldfinger it is uh, Shirley Bassey I believe Yes, yes. And, and in this case, it was, I believe, Sonia Jones? Yes, yes, Sonia Jones. And you've got written here, she was just 16 years old when she sung this. That's incredible. It really is incredible. To have a part in something that big is truly mind-blowing. So it, I love these little details that go into the history of a production. 
and all the creative elements that come to what you say. And what I adore about that song, I'd never really noticed, but if you listen to the lyrics underneath the bombastic music and the visuals, as you said here, they're very much like Yellow Submarine, which is very, very accurate. I think George Harrison even had a hand with the production of this film. He did. He yes, did. Handmade Pictures. He was a big Python fan. They all, actually, all four of them. Yeah. If you actually uh, listen to the lyrics of this song, they're the most generic lyrics. It's just like saying, Brian, he grew up... And then he started grow more. It's so funny. Should I get the lyrics up quickly? Speaking of George Harrison's role in all of this, when you consider some of the big overarching, deeper themes of the movie, it makes all the sense in the world that he would be part of this. Because these are the kind of things that he really thought about a great deal. And quite famously at that. So I'm not at all surprised that he'd want to get on board with this. Like I said, the Beatles themselves were big Monty Python fans. And I did love how the opening animation and certain scenes and acts from Yellow Submarine were very stylistically similar. Not the same, but very similar, kind of of that era and that place and time. If you watch some of the Beatles films, they are sort of that same sort of absurdist comedy as oh, yeah. uh, Python. And like, I remember I watched Help a while back. And I was this just is about to mention scene. Help. <laughs> Help is the oddest film, one of the oddest films you will watch. And... There's that wonderful scene where they all go into their terrace housing and just cuts to the inside and there's just one massive house that's been caved in. And that's just that that's that wonderful, like sort of, I guess, British odd humor. Oh yeah, totally. And then you get into even stranger places when you when you watch Magical Mystery Tour. I haven't I haven't risked oh, that one yet. Highly suggested. And also predating help and yellow submarine and all the rest. Very highly recommended a hard day's night. Which is, I've heard good things. It, it's a very, very good movie. It has that over-the-top ridiculousness and, and the way that the British very classically enjoyed humor and satire at the time and place in which it was produced. Yes, and after the introduction scene and the title cards, we go on to, we, we go flash forward to 33 years AD, Saturday afternoon, about tea time. About tea time. Which is a great way to set the scene. But Paul, I believe you took umbrage with this statement of it being about tea time. I wouldn't necessarily say I, I can bring umbrage with it. And I think there's a couple of ways of looking at it. But of course, if you are a Jew living in first century Palestine in 33 AD, the Sabbath is going on at the time. So Shabbat is on Friday night. In this case, they demarcate a day from sundown to the following day sundown from Friday night until Saturday night marks the Sabbath. And for the most part, and this is obviously very much a matter of decree, depending on what sect of Judaism you're in, even today, how much you recognize the Sabbath and to what the parameters are for what's inbounds and what's out of bounds for the day in which you are supposed to rest. And I suppose it's at least possible the idea that they were going to see what was obviously them lampooning Jesus's Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and it's possible that it could be considering it like synagogue, but I'm, I can't say that for sure. But it did strike me that you saw a great deal of physical movement and over a fair distance in that case on a day that was very much and still is meant for rest, even though what qualifies in terms of boundaries very much depends on the Jewish family and practitioner in question. So it was just something that stuck out to me, but worth mentioning to say the least. No, yeah, it's very good. And uh, and that's, I guess, kind of the joy of us talking about historic films like The Life of Brian. It could be argued it's too 
I don't know if you if you're allowed to call us historians, but two people with a big fascination in history. I consider us historical specialists and presenters. That's a great way to put it. Us sort of nitpicking at things, getting to understand stuff more. One of the things I noticed was the classic. I mean, I I should have checked where this film was filmed. It was clearly, I believe it was filmed somewhere in the Middle East. But if you notice all the background stuff, it's all dilapidated, the buildings are ruined, and the statues are white. And of course, we as historians know that that wasn't the case. Nope. It, no, they, they would have been painted bright, bright colours. Mm-hmm. We, we, we simply understand them as that today because it's all faded over thousands of years. But not then. And we can kind of accept that, especially a film like Monty Python, but when when other more pompous films, <clears throat> Gladiator, are doing <laughs> it as well, that's when we can kind of get a bit annoyed about the ones that are trying to be a bit more sort of grand and epic. When they're doing it as well, that's when we can take umbrage, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And and granted, both are works of entertainment, not not mm. history, but... You would expect a little bit more by way of accuracy, and by little I mean a great deal, from something like Gladiator, because yeah. it's not satire. It's dead no. serious. It's dead serious. That's definitely a film we can talk about another time. And oh, yeah. uh, once, so while Jesus is doing his sermon, Brian gets into a bit of a confrontation, I believe, and his nose gets called into action. And Paul, you have some notes on Brian's nose, I believe. For Brian, he literally has a Roman nose. <laughs> that bridge, and then it kind of falls off at about oh, a 60-degree angle or whatever it is. And, and of course, we know, if you can take his mother's word, that his father is, was indeed Roman. Nautius Maximus. But no, it's a great little uh, thing you picked up on there. And once Brian and his mum get bored with Jesus' sermon, because obviously that's what you would do, you would just get bored and walk away from seeing Jesus speak, they decide to go to the stoning. And obviously to go to the stoning, Brian's mum has to put a beard on because women aren't allowed to go to stonings. And Brian asks, he goes, mum, why aren't you allowed to go to the stoning? And her wonderful response, and there's a lot in this, is because it's written, that's why. And <laughs> I, I think there's a lot to say, just the, the power of the written word, how like entrenched we can get into things because they're written down. You know, I guess you could argue that things like the Ten Commandments, the Bible itself, how much people, how much stock people put in written things. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because when it comes to that. Interesting aside, if you're ever trying to sell to somebody, and this is something that's funny because the issue of haggling comes up as, as, as several sketches in this in mm. this movie, is it's always a lot harder to negotiate a price with somebody who's selling something when they have outlined exactly what their prices are in writing. It basically kind of shuts the whole thing right down. Just something I've learned along the way. This is something that is well noted for those who teach the art and power of power negotiating. For example, like the course by Roger Dawson, he always says, mm. if you want to cut somebody off of the pass and you really want to get your way, if you put it in writing, it gives them very, very little wiggle room. Y you know you've had it when you got it in writing right in front of you in many cases. So I thought the idea that the, the power of what is in writing, you better believe it. You better believe it. From the stoning, and so we all know the famous stoning scene of all the women in beards. And what I enjoy about this 
is I believe some of the pythons themselves are playing these women disguised as men. So we've got, I think one of them, I think at least Eric Idle is one of them. So you've got men dressed as women disguising as men. And that's just that great sort of python humor, just toppling things on top of each other like that. And I just get a big kick out of that. But, but that's stoning. And this is something we talked about uh, with Juvenal. He actually pioneered this term. We see it a bit later on when they're actually at Colosseum Games. I guess this could be seen as uh, Rome's bread and circuses. Like this is just a more keep the masses entertained with stonings, with murders like that. And it's just a great example of it here. Oh yeah, absolutely. And on top of that, when you get into that scene and, mm. and the whole concept of blasphemy for saying the word Jehovah and just how all the back and forth that went on <laughs> and just how, how we're, and this is not necessarily pointed at religion by any means, but it definitely speaks to the fickleness and ridiculousness of how people act in groups and crowds, that you're getting mm. very different people individually than how they necessarily act in a group, and just how it goes from wanting to stone the, the very old man who had said Jehovah to basically dropping a boulder on on. <laughs> On the religious figure who was trying to conduct the stoning to begin with. Yes, that mob mentality is really coming in full of an effect there. They just they're just so anxious to stone anyone that they'll they'll just take their chance with forever, really. No, they're they're really digging it. Yeah. And as I said, we go on eventually, so that's when Brian comes home with his mum after the stoning and she reveals to him that her father, his father even was a Roman, Nautius Maximus. As I mentioned, he promised uh, Brian's mum as much yes. gold as she could eat. Yes, yes, yes. I don't know if it can be succinctly explained, but I guess we have a little crack of it. So why would it have been so bad? And why would Brian have been so upset to have a Roman dad, Paul? I, I, I know we both know, I don't know if this is sort of a conversation you want to have about this, but there's a lot to unpack with that. So if you remember back to our extended interview with Sam Aronow mm. and this idea of, in the case of worship, to be specific, that the Jews usually worshipped in an enclosed space, whereas a lot of temples are open air, and that the Jews in general preferred to have more intimate gatherings and uh, connections behind closed doors in a way that was very atypical and very much set off kind of Roman paranoia. And the one thing that was interesting about that is that he was saying they must be sexual deviants because we can't see what they're doing behind closed doors and they won't have sex with us. <laughs> when you realize that there was obviously an aversion, you can see that there's an aversion to specifically consorting with one's conquerors and imperial overseers, potentially if made known or, you know, impropriety or mores are always at least as bad, if not worse, when they are perceived. And the idea that you could perceive to be of Roman progeny as a Jew, even though traditionally in Judaism, one always receives the religion and faith from their mother, that could be a very mm. difficult thing in this kind of place and time, because if you go all the way back to early season one, you know how much of a powder keg first century Palestine was and the inherent conflict and tensions that existed between 
the Jews that lived there and their Roman imperial overseers, as it were. So yeah, if something like this were known or at least thought, that's not always going to be the best thing because there was clearly an aversion to that particular set of circumstances. And in the case of Brian, obviously he's very, very intent not to have that be the case. Very well explained. Brian having a Roman dad and a Jewish mum isn't good for both sides, especially if, say, the People's Front of Judea or the Judean People's Front would find out that one of their key members had a Roman dad. And that's, of course, once uh, Brian finds out this, we see him at his day job selling all kinds of stuff. I can't remember the exact things he's selling, but it's not peanuts. It's, it's, it's a pretty gross stuff he's selling. And yes, so it's here he joins the People's Front of Judea. And I was very interested by these guys. They play a big role. And I kind of did some digging. I think you did some digging into this as well, Paul. And obviously we say this is a product of its time. Not only does it reflect things that happened in early AD history, but it's very much a reflection of what was going on in the world in the 1970s. I just checked... This film came out in 1979, so the 70s were pretty much done with by the time this film came out. They were supposed to be making fun of big movements, leftist sort of movements of the time. Yeah, when I saw it, I, I didn't really even have to do digging for the most mm. part because I, I watched it and I hadn't even looked at your notes on the subject yet, Patrick. But when I saw that and how they were acting, to me, it very much was reminiscent of descriptors that I have read from, for example an RSDLP meeting, which is the English acronym for Russian Socialist Democratic Labor Party, which famously included both the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. And they were very much interested in these very long committee-type sessions where you had to have a real iron bottom to endure them, and that they very much conducted themselves in this way. And it had that kind of tone to it where it was lampooning the banality of the extremism yes that's a great way of putting it and i guess it all comes to a head with their leader who i mentioned reg and i guess reg is john cleese's main character i guess in this film and he is very much do as i say does as i do when they plan their big attack reg can't do it because he has a bad back <laughs> it's just yes, yes. isn't that really amazing the exceptions we draw <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and you often see like, oh, I hate social media. Like, you're saying that on Facebook. It's, it's... Yeah, the sheer hypocrisy of it. Yeah, and there is some hypocrisy. And, and, it's, and course... it's not even intentionally ironic. There's just such no, a lack of self-awareness. Yes, it's just people being silly. And it's also here, I think it's the popular people's front of Judea. We mm -hmm. see him. That's one of them, yeah. <laughs> That's one of him. And what the uh, people's front of Judea shouts him is splitter. And I was like, what, what is a splitter? And I did some research on this pool and I googled uh, splitter, life of Brian, meaning. And of course, I came up with a very reputable source of urban dictionary. Mm -hmm. So splitter apparently comes from bread splitter, which was a late 18th and early 19th century term. So it's a bit out of date here, but it was for a man. It was an insult aimed at a man who would share his bread. He would split his bread with a lot of different women, for lack of a better term. So it's kind of a term given to lecherous men. They were called splitters because they were bread splitters. And that's where that term came from. I just never heard it before. And luckily, Urban Dictionary was there to save the day. Not just Urban Dictionary, 
but Mr. Name Explain. Yes, yes. So some, 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 even on Christmas Day itself, I can't avoid explaining names. You know, it's just who you are, Patrick. This is what <laughs> I have learned over two years. You can't turn it off because it's who you are. No, it's just I'm just stuck with it, I'm afraid. Um, and as we go on through the film, we get to the great, perhaps, I'd say what, I'd say this way, three incredibly well-known scenes from this film. And this is the earliest of these three well-known scenes. And that's the classic, what have the Romans done for us scene? And Paul, I, I believe you have a list of just some of the things the Romans have done for us. Well, as they say in the film, aqueducts, sanitation, roads, education, medicine, various aspects of culture. It's 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 very it's very funny how they insert that in into all this and just the absurdity of being human in a very difficult place and time. It parallels that whole concept of how like these anti movements couldn't really abide by their own rules. And a great example I've just seen I've just thought of is you get sort of like some extreme environmentalists and they'll be like, Oh, we've got to save the planet, but then they'll they'll still do stuff like travel via airplanes and it's an easy it's things like that like the media like to point out oh you want to care for the planet but there you are using an airplane it's like these things they hate the romans but hold on like the, the people from judea despise the romans not to get rid of them but their life has actually been made a whole lot better by the romans and i think michael palin's character at one point says oh it was awful around here before the romans got here and it's just that sort of <laughs> ridiculousness yeah, it, it definitely is. And it also very much speaks to the, the concept that almost invariably throughout history, and this is also going to be true of Brian as well, that there are two things. One is most revolutions, successful ones, ones that manage to build something that endures and is net positive, even itself is not often able to live up to the, the values and goals that they espouse to at the time of revolution. And in the case of Brian, and this is very clearly seen at the end of the movie, but I want to mention it here. From Cromwell to Trotsky, and in the case of Cromwell, obviously it happened posthumously, is all revolutions devour their own children. And it's something to keep in mind anytime you're studying revolutionary movements, whether it be 2,000 years ago or 100 years ago or five minutes ago. It is very much part of the process. A lot of very good scholars of revolution, whatever the context, time period, and whatever the goals, it has a tendency to, one, not be able to live up to the entirety of what they want to achieve and the values they espouse, and revolutions almost always devour their own children. That's a very good, good quote. I'm going to use that one more often in the future when I come up to it. It's all yours. Thank you. And as we carry on through the film, Brian eventually gets captured by Pontius. Well, no, before that, we have the classic Roman go home writing. He has to write a hundred thousand times, however many times he has to write it, which is a very it's good like, a, like he's a bloody school child being reprimanded after yeah. having to stay after yes. class. And something else I need to say here as well. We'll talk about how great Terry Jones is and all the Pythons are going this, but Graham Chapman, I believe this is going from some ancient sort of things I read when I was a kid. I believe John Cleese almost was Brian due to Graham Chapman's drinking problems. He, he was a very troubled life, Graham Chapman. A lot of drinking, a lot of smoking. And he just pulled out of the back for this scene. He is, obviously, for this entire film, he is fantastic as Brian. And it was great. They knew what they were doing when they made him the lead role in not only this, but in the Holy Grail as well. They knew Graham was terrific at these sort of roles and just that sort of look of fear and stress he has on his face for most of this film, especially towards the end, how angry and fed up he seems. 
I don't think any of the other Pythons could have done that quite as well. No, it's very poignant here. And one of the things I like about the whole Romans go home thing mm. is, of course, when the centurions first show up and they see him writing it, they're not taking umbrage with the fact of what he's writing. They are taking umbrage with his grammar in writing yeah. it. And I saw that and I thought to myself, well, if that isn't on some level poking fun at the concept of Romanization, on some level, at least the way I see it as as Paul watching this movie, I don't think it could be any better. That and, of course, the sheer absurdity of it all, where it goes to the point where they make sure it is pitch perfect correct, and then, of course, thousands of times on the building by the mm. next morning, saying, if you don't do it by sunrise, we'll cut your balls off. <laughs> No, it's, it's a great scene. And I just, while I was watching that, I was like, man, I remember trying to remember all those lines. It's such a well, it's a really like tightly scripted scene. Like there's all these like really fancy linguistical words of like, have to have that there, there, there. I try to impress it. But as we carry on through the film, we're introduced, I guess, to the most, I guess it's one of the few characters in this film, a, a regular character who is a real historical person. He's one who's, obviously we see Jesus in this film as well, but in regards to a Python playing a real historic character, we have Michael Palin as Pontius Pilate. And I guess the most notable thing about this character is his wisp, or lisp, I ought to say. And that lisp and the sort of camp image Michael Palin portrays Pontius Pilate in. I read, um, according to Anna Rowe, who's a big Pontius Pilate biographer, this really helped create a modern image of the character and future depictions have made him somewhat effeminate too. Yeah, so Pontius Pilate is one of the most difficult figures in, in all of this, whether you're going it from a theological standpoint, whether you're going from a more pure history standpoint, because the way he's portrayed in the Gospels varies a great deal in his interactions with Jesus. You go from basically like you have Mark, where they're barely Jesus and Pilate are barely saying anything to each other, and you go to something else like John, and there's this entire conversation. For Pilate's case, he we talk about this back in episode one, and as well as the historical Jesus episode. And the fact of the matter is, he he is a a stranger in a strange land. You mm. know, Passover, which half of this movie takes place on, effectively, certainly the last thirty minutes. It's the only time of the year he's going from the imperial administration capital of Caesarea to Jerusalem because there's this huge swelling of pilgrimage for Jews that are coming in for the temple to celebrate and observe the Passover, and he wants eyes on the ground, and he wants to make sure everything is going right. And so Pilate, in the Gospels as we understand them today, this is less a historical thing, but it has historic impact. So let's qualify it by saying that. Pilate is very difficult to, to really pin down between the historical Pilate and how Christianity has taken the role of Pilate. And in a lot of ways, of course, when you, if you're looking at the Gospels, and some more than others, Pilate gets something of a pass because he says, well, I've seen no actual crime that I, I can conceive of, but you guys seem to want it a whole lot, so I wash my hands of it. And in this case, they're, they're, they're taking it a whole other step further that this is being done for the purpose of entertainment spectacle, of course, which in, in the Gospels, insofar as you have the, the trial of Jesus before Pilate, was a much, much more serious ordeal. And, of course, they also bring up the example 
of sparing somebody. Now, of course, in the Gospels, for the most part, they have the two choices. Do you, do you want me to spare uh, Barabbas, or do you want me to spare Jesus? And of course, they choose Barabbas. And they, they, they take it to a whole new level where they have a whole host, 140 crucifixes, as I recall, for that day, all for the purposes largely of entertainment. And the crowd just keeps trolling them with names of people they just don't have. And so they make Pontius Pilate this kind of strange, impotent, and largely benign figure that is not particularly well-intentioned, but not particularly poorly intentioned either, and is just remarkably easy and a great satisfaction of screwing with them. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. He is sort of like just confused and he is a sort of the butt of the joke I guess especially you're saying with the lisp and wanting to release people they're throwing him all these sort of R names but luckily Brian eventually escapes Pontius Pilate and how he escapes from Pontius Pilate and the Romans at this point is one of the oddest no the oddest scene in this entire film and this is with the spaceship escape scene I remember we probably do a whole podcast just this scene I remember, like, that's so weird. That, I, I, I don't know if it's a bad thing. I kind of, part of it makes me feel like, part of me makes me feel like it just sort of it belittles it that they have to have this random scene. But is there any more to it? I've, I've kind of seen all kinds of debates as to what this scene is all about. Some just say it's just literally silly nonsense because it's a Monty Python. They do silly things and it gives Terry Jones a reason to do some animating. But... Some people think it's also, not Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam even, but some see it as having sort of deeper meaning. Paul, do you think there's any deeper meaning to it? Honestly, I don't friggin' know. I, I, I don't, but I'm curious to see what others' takes are on this, because clearly you've looked into this a bit, more than mm. I have. When I saw it, it was like, that's just, it, it was just, it seemed like deus ex machina, simply to lampoon deus ex machina. And that's one of the ideas behind why it's there, is literally just to be ridiculous and to get yeah. him out of that situation. Yeah, so I mean, that's kind of how I took it. I was like, this, this movie is insane enough. You know, why, why wouldn't we have the, <laughs> the, the perfectly timed interference of alien intelligent creatures right into the middle of the narrative to, to yank our, our protagonist away exactly when he needed it? One of the ideas I've uh, read, apart from obviously the Deus Ex Machina reason, is it's supposed to be some sort of like religious allegory. Like it's literally Brian being saved by a higher being, a being from another existence, aliens in this case. And perhaps it's somewhat supposed to be a dig at religion as a whole. Maybe some people might argue that if we found alien life, that would be definitive proof that there isn't a God by any chance. And yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that myself, that some people might argue that. I guess aliens and like religion are kind of somewhat parallel with each other. This is my own English literature A-level spitballing sort of ideas here, mm -hmm. I must admit. But maybe that could be a definitive, this is the kind of real weird stuff that's going on out in the wider universe, not just a man with a big beard floating in the sky. That's maybe an idea I sort of saw from it. Well, I think there's a lot you can take away from it, but one thing that is for certain I think they were I think they were just lampooning Deus Ex Machina and and doing it in the absolute most ridiculous way you can possibly conceive. Sometimes what what's the old saying by Freud? Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Uh, there's one last theory I saw here. I must think there's this great Quora article 
of people, uh, just uh, someone asking what's this scene all about. And the one thing I see, and as we said, this film not only relates to Christianity, also relates to the 70s. And of course, in the 70s, there was a certain film franchise called Star Wars that came out and kind of changed everything. And apparently in this time, there were so many other films trying to ride the coattails of Star Wars that like you had to have a space fight in it. And <laughs> something, it was just let's put a space scene in there to appease people who like Star Wars, kind of a parody of everyone being obsessed with Star Wars or just a parody of Star Wars itself. It's amazing how that franchise has just captivated the world and the influence it's had in places in Monty Python of all places. You know, this isn't Mel Brooks Spaceballs. This is Life of Brian. This is supposed to take place 2,000 years ago. Now, granted, a long time ago in a galaxy (laughs) far, far away but a lot closer to home and a lot closer in time. So it's as good an explanation as any. Yeah. And when uh, that spaceship crashes, someone says something to Brian, and it's a quote that's said to him a few times throughout the film. It's just some random guy, and he goes, you lucky bastard. And this is kind of the... A lot of people say this is the important... These are the three most important words to life of Brian, you lucky bastard. Because so much of his film... So much of his life is dependent on Brian's sheer good or bad luck being in the right place or the wrong place at the right or wrong time. It, by and large, that propels the plot forward where he falls out and he lands and starts preaching a, a bit later on. Do you think this is a reference to how religion could just be seen as a coincidence people have put meaning into? that? Might, I guess that was maybe what the Pythons were getting at here. Well, I think you could take that position, especially when you include it with the other scene with, uh, what was the type of bush they had? Oh, I know what you mean. I can't remember the exact kind of berry, but it's like blueberries or raspberries. It's something in particular. Yes. And he, the, the, you know, his newfound followers are asking for a miracle. And one of them obviously is asking to feed them, which of course is a less than subtle reference to the fishes and the loaves mm. and the and that miracle as it's portrayed in the gospels and he points out a bush nearby and they say to themselves he has shown us the miracle and he says no it's not a miracle it was just sitting there oh <laughs> it's like i'm not the messiah only the messiah would you know would yeah. play down his own divinity and and so you have there's a certain this is a word that gets used too much but i think it's appropriate here they take kind of what I would call a a lighthearted nihilism in mm. terms of how they interpret religion from the writer's point of view and how they chose to portray it. And that as human beings, is there is there objective truth and objective morality? Or is it just those who are calling the shots and the meaning that we want to read into it? Those are the questions that the movie is asking. And I can say for certain, Patrick, that it is entirely beyond our purview to have any sort of answer for it. No, and I guess, as you mentioned with the berry and the old man in the ditch, once again portrayed by Terry Jones naked, as Terry Jones often was during his time with the Pythons. Yeah. Um, this is, the, I guess it's sort of this last third of the film that goes hard on the religious messiah part. And it's here, I guess... It, it, Black Brian becomes satire at its best. And we have things like the gourd and the shoes. Some of them have the gourd. Some of them believe the shoe is his symbol. And we have this thing where he says he's not the Messiah. And they say, oh, only the Messiah wouldn't say he's the Messiah. These sort of fantastic things like that. It's just so well done how these fanatics who all of a sudden, who all of a sudden Brian's fanatics, 
They'll believe and twist and interpret everything Brian does to be a positive. And it's just great. And I love when I've got a quote here. And this kind of, I guess, could sum up a pessimistic view of religion. There's the silent old man in the ditch. And when Brian steps on his uh, foot, he starts being, oh my God, my foot, you hurt me so much. And now that he's given up his vow of silence, he just goes, oh, I might as well enjoy my life now. It's just a great sort of comment about how much some people choose, I guess, to suffer for their religion. I, I don't know if that's the correct way. And that made me put my foot in my mouth for somewhat with that sort of statement. We were saying people suffer for their religion. But you see people doing amazing feats of like endurance on their body for religion. And this is an example of this. And people would rather be unhappy in themselves, but pleasing their religion than being happy just unto themselves. And this silent old man, once he fails his religion, he says, I might as well enjoy my life now. And I just thought that really hit the nail on the head. Well, I suppose when we when we agreed to do this episode, it was always invariably going to end up in, to one degree or another, some few rather deeper metaphysical points. And one of them that I have always found that held true, in terms of colloquialism, in terms of how we use language today, when we refer to one's faith, we're referring very specifically to religion or what we consider to be greater spiritual matters, right? Those things that are intangible. Hmm. It has been my observation, and I am not alone in this, that for humans, everybody has faith. But in what? Everybody has faith in something. And it's not exclusive to religion or greater matters. It can be a set of ideas, whether it be religious or secular in nature. Any number of things that order your universe, that when it comes to human beings, each of us have a certain set of ideas, whatever they might be, that we read into from what would be considered, in a general respect, faith. And sometimes I think it's very interesting, whatever the ideas may be, whatever the context, and like I said, this is nothing that is unique to religion by any means, but anytime we run into ideas or, or things that can complicate our worldview, we're often, all of us are guilty of it to one extent or another. No one is immune from it, that we can find ourselves in a situation where we look for ways to interpret information that fits whatever article of faith it is that we hold dear. And in this case, Life of Brian does that and, and works with that and examines that in, in great satirical detail. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once again, Paul, hitting the nail on the head yourself. Woo! <laughs> and this goes on. So eventually Brian gets back home and we're led to, I was saying, I was saying there's three famous scenes from this film. I guess the second of these, and perhaps the most famous scene, is Brian's mum talking to Brian's new devout followers. And of course, that great line, he's not the Messiah. He's, he's a, a very, very naughty boy. Naughty boy. Um, I don't know if there's much to read into that. It's just a great line. Paul, do you have any thoughts on that line yourself? Uh, apparently, it's in the running for perhaps the best comedy line in any movie of all time. I can and understand I that. And I, I don't know that I can possibly add to that. My goodness. It definitely encompasses what the writers are thinking in Life of Brian to a, a single phrase. Mm. He's a very naughty 
boy. And of course, this all eventually leads to uh, Brian's, I guess, somewhat, no, not somewhat, completely unnecessary um, crucifixion. And Paul, you got a comment written here saying Roman citizens could not be executed. So would Ryan, would Ryan, would Brian not have been a Roman citizen himself, or was he a Roman citizen? Well, I don't think that's particularly established. But you will know that when his life does go on the line, he immediately goes from "I'm a Jew who hates the Romans" to "I'm a Roman." Of course, it does. Yes, when when, <laughs> when his own neck is on the line. So, getting into the concept of Roman citizenship at this point in this place is very difficult. But one thing is for certain is that it wasn't easy to become a Roman citizen. And just because you were a subject of the empire does not mean you are a citizen of the empire. And if you were a citizen of the empire, of course, corporal punishment was a fact of life. But as I understand it, crucifixion was considered so heinous, even by the Romans who practiced it. They said, well, we might kill you for your crimes if you're a Roman citizen, but we're not going to nail you to a cross. That was for everyone else. Mm. And it is, it is a really unpleasant... Yeah, crucifixion's an awful thing. I don't know if we need to sort of focus more on the tower thing, especially on Christmas Day. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think anybody who's listening gets the idea. <laughs> With Brian on the cross, it seems all hope is lost. But then a flurry of people come to save him, and the people's front of Judea decide to make him a martyr for their cause. And this, I guess, is once again a reference to those uh, anti-establishment movements of the 70s where they wouldn't really do much, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, there's there's a certain comedy in their inaction and how they built up this kind of internal bureaucracy where they have such revolutionary aims, but they do it within the course of such... Monotonous. But, yeah, monotonous acts mm. of banality that it really that they literally go up to him on the cross and read to him a motion that they passed <laughs> in consensus for him and, and thanking him for, for his martyrdom and what he's done for the cause. That's the idea behind revolutions invariably devoured their own children. But in this yeah. case, even Brian ended up in their ranks almost entirely by accident. He was not even exactly. that willing of a child. He was simply trying to prove himself after finding out a very disturbing personal truth that his father was a Roman and feeling the need to prove himself and just in the ridiculous way that Monty Python goes, and this is no exception to the life of Brian, he finds himself nailed to a cross as a result of it in the end. It's just so clever, especially saying that he's going to prove himself and that kind of backfires on him. It's just such a bloody, clever, brilliant film. And of course, the other, the Judean people's front tried to come save him. Oh no, I is it the Judean people from the suicide pact? They try and save him and just end up killing themselves. Yes, they were like the suicide. Yeah, uh, the, su yeah, so they, they're the suicide, suicide pact force yeah. or whatever the case is, and, and they just fall on their sword. <laughs> yeah, which is, I guess, a phrase unto itself. And even uh, his girlfriend and mum come and then of course he's freed and everyone's shouting i'm brian and my favorite of course is i'm brian and so is my wife which is just a great silly line i guess this is once again in reference to i guess another trope and i guess in some ways this film is a parody of the old epics the, like the epics of the 50s and the 60s and the ben hers um the sandals and swords type films and it's a reference to Spartacus, I guess. Everyone's shouting, I'm Spartacus. It's once again another... Yeah, it was Spartacus to a T. Yeah, it's more Spartacus. And 
it's the film's end is it's so dark. It's a real dark ending, but it's brilliant. It's what I would honestly say it's one of the greatest film endings ever. Oh yeah. And and think about how difficult it is to end a movie like this. Endings are hard enough in and of themselves, but when you're doing satire and you're you're dealing where you're lampooning a well-known story in its various forms, it's incredibly hard to end on the right note and strike once again that four-letter word, that right tone. Mm. And this is it's, it's something that not everybody comes away with the same idea with. You know, people definitely did take umbrage with the crucifixion scene. And I, I suppose it says as much about the individual and how, how they feel about these ideas and what the movie is espousing as it says in terms of how the movie is messaging it with the writer's intent. Yeah, it's it's incredibly harrowing scene. Like, it's awful. The main character, the guy the film is named after, is not only killed at the end, he's crucified. And this would be an awful, horrible scene to watch if it weren't for one song pool. Um, which will end within a few minutes, yes. Which we will end, we'll, we'll attempt to end within a few minutes if, 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 if we can sync up in time, I'm sure we'll do something, but... Always look on the bright side of life. Of course, not only is it a great song and a great way to end a film, do you think it's perhaps a reference to, I guess, fundamentally, I mean, this film is taking a very negative approach on religion. That's, that, that, that's not hard to understand here. I can't help but this feel, feel this, this song is supposed to be the positive of religion. You often see a lot of people who are deeply religious, no matter what is thrown at them. They always think, oh, God's, God's testing me. It's, it's all for the greater good. A lot of religious people do always look on the bright side of life. They always see it as a positive. It's something their religion has chosen for them. And I guess that's the hidden meaning of why the film ends with this, that despite all of this, we can always look on the bright side of life. It's hard to really know. I would describe Life of Brian more as religiously skeptic than anything else. For a variety of reasons. They're having fun with it, and they wanted to have fun with it, and they knew they were playing with fire at the time. And they were there's a lot of apprehension behind the scenes before it was released, and it's what it is. You can look it up on Wikipedia. The stories are out there. You don't need us to rehash that, too. I always consider it more religiously skeptic, it, it, and it pokes as much at humanity itself as it does with religion itself, how we act in groups, the idea of faith. What are we willing to die for? What would we do for $10? What would we use $10 for? That kind of thing. And that that's really what's most interesting to me. But Brian goes through his own revelations. You know, Brian very much speaks in many regards to what it seems to be the intent of the writers in this case. And he gives his own sermon out his front door in front of his that huge raucous crowd. Don't follow leaders or you know, basically a set of ideas. You're individuals. Think for yourselves. We are individuals. Of course. We will think, yeah, we think for ourselves. And in, in that way, it just reminds me of a quote. I'm not necessarily purporting this to be the case here because I, I, this is how everyone makes of it. I once heard an excellent quote by a, a rather famous 20th century American figure by the name of Eric Butterworth. And he said, the definition of a mystic is one who is no longer mystified. 
And could hmm. you say that about Brian? I guess so, yeah. He isn't mystified at all. He knows very clearly how he feels about everything. He, he's never confused or anxious. He knows exactly. He seems angry a lot of the time, and he's quite clear with his actions. And that that's what makes people believe he's the Messiah. And and his goals are are so common and relatable. He when you stop and think about it, you know, he wants to be accepted by the group. You know, he wants to get laid. Just <laughs> just all like I said, all these banalities of life that he should end up in such a position through almost no fault or action of his own. And as much as he tries to fight it, it gets worse. And then at the end of the day, he suffers the ultimate fate. But, Death. of course, it ends as it does. And the question I'm curious from the audience, if you're listening to this at home or wherever you are, and whether you're on the various podcast directories, certainly this is true on YouTube. I'm curious, guys, it's been almost, we're coming up on over four decades since this was released, almost five when you think about it. How well did this movie age? Because clearly an audience today is not going to come away with the same ideas and impressions that they would when they first released it or the interim between. Does it age in any way in particular if you are old enough to remember? How do you remember this movie when you first watched it? How old were you? What year was it? And when you rewatched it potentially years later, how did your view change of it? It's weird because... Society's always changing, values are always changing, and how we go about them. Would you say that it ages in the way that, say, Blazing Saddles has aged? <laughs> Is it understood with the intention that it was meant at the time? We want to hear your guys' thoughts. But because this is Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate, or just Patrick and myself celebrating you, the listener, <laughs> we have a little treat for you and something you don't get to see very often— and that is Patrick armed with his ukulele. A very poorly tuned ukulele, I must add, by the way. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. Consider that our seasonal gift to you, <laughs> our wonderful listeners. We thank you all for the wonderful year, and we will see you again in three weeks on January 16th, 2021, where we will launch AD History into 2021. Cheers to you all, and a happy new year. Thank you all so much. Have a wonderful holiday time and have a great new year. Here's to 2021. Cheers.